Did you guys know that currently, as we sit this morning, that there's over a hundred and I think it's 70 countries who are currently at war? We, we don't think about that often because we live our life here in Milledgeville, Georgia, where we go back and forth to our jobs, to our school, to family, to eat, and there's just war out there. The truth of the matter is that those wars are always going, and they just seem to always going to be there, so we don't often think about them. Did you know that you yourself this morning are in the middle of a war? It's not one that you were enlisted in. It's not one that you volunteered for. It was one that you were born into. The second that you came from your mother's womb into this world, you were born into a war. Scripture would call you, call you a soldier for Christ. Ephesians would say that you have armor for this battle, that you in fact have a weapon sitting in many of your laps right now. It's a war with this world and its ruler, Satan. The question is not, are you at war? The question is, do you realize that you're at war? Are you fighting this war, this fight that Paul would call the good fight of faith? Do you look like you've been in war? Have you ever looked at the World War II documentaries of men who have come home from war? As your pastor, I get to see your faces often, and I get to see the residual effects of this spiritual warfare on your faces often in the form of either melancholiness or depression or what many of you will call a headspace. I get to see many of you fighting faithfully, and I get to see the scars that you bear as the witness and the testimony of Christ's goodness in your life. We indeed are at war, a war with the world and its ruler. Join me in 1 John 5, 1 through 5, as we come into the final chapter of this first epistle of John, where we will see there our title for the sermon, Overcoming the World. Now, this morning, we're going to do something a little bit different than what we typically do, because John, as we said last week and so many times, tends to repeat himself. The first three verses of our text this morning are just a recap. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a brief overview of these first three verses in 1 John 5, and then we're going to really settle in on verses 4 through 5. As we do, we're going to see this theme. You'll see it there in your bulletin. Only by faith in Christ overcoming do we overcome. If the goal this morning is to realize that we're in this war, and indeed we are, the natural question that we must ask as believers is how do we overcome? How do we win this war? What is this war about? And from the very beginning, we need to see this morning that only by faith in Christ overcoming do we overcome. So join me as we read from God's word. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who knows, everyone who loves the Father, loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Father, as we approach your word, as we have just read it, God, would you teach us through your spirit this morning 
And this reality, would you call to mind the truth that we so often know but neglect that we are at war? Would you embolden us? Would you strengthen us? Would you convict us where we need to be of our lackadaisical approach to this war? And would you encourage us that this war is one in you and you alone? Would you show what it, us what it means to practically live this way every single day? That we may be not only a people that glorify you, but an entire church family that seeks to do the same. So Father, we pray and we ask for your name to be magnified and to be glorified through the teaching of this word, that we as your children would be shaped and molded more and more and more into the image of your son. We pray and ask all of these things and ask for your help in them by the power of your spirit in the name of your son. Amen. Now, over the last four chapters, we have seen that John is essentially just giving us tests for assurance to encourage us that we can know that we are in Christ. These tests for us are indeed to see whether or not that we have believed, tests that we have loved, tests that we have obeyed. Those are the three tests. These are really a warm blanket he is throwing around us so that way we can have assurance that we are in Christ. We see these as our recap as we start out in verse one. The question here that we're asking of the text is, who has been born of God? We see this recap that as you're looking at your bulletin, those who believe Jesus is the Christ is the first blank there. Those who believe Jesus is the Christ. Join me in verse one. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. First John 2.23 taught us this, whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Belief, that is the first assurance that we see in the text as a recap. Secondly, who has been born of God? We see in verse two, those who love God and fellow children of God. As verse one continues, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. First John 4.20 taught us this, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Pretty simple. We've seen this over and over and over again. Believe and love. Believe and love are two assurances. The second question that we get to ask in verses two through three is this, of this assurance as we recap here. How do we know we love the fellow children of God? This is really what the past two weeks has been about as love for neighbor and love for brother. Join me in verse two. By this, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. What John has been teaching us so far is that love for brother proves love for God. And all he is doing here is just showing us the reciprocal. That love for brother is best evidenced in our love for God and obedience to his commandments. Husbands, you perhaps understand this very well. Perhaps the best way that you can love a brother, your, one of your closest one being your children, the best way you can love your children is more often than not, is your love for your bride. It demonstrates to them the best type of love that you can is a self-sacrificial love. It's a love that reflects Christ. All John is saying here is the same thing. The first point here is when we obey to love God, we see this in verse two, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Rather, verse three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. Loving God is keeping his commandments, and that's not a legalistic thing to say. We have seen that over and over again. 1 John 2, 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But also, the converse of that statement is true, as you're looking there in your bulletin. It's not only when we obey to love God do we know we love the fellow children of God, but it's also when we love to obey God can we be assured we see this as verse three concludes, and his commandments are not burdensome. When God's commands are not burdensome, we may know that we love the children of God. 
Jesus teaches us this in Matthew eleven thirty. Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. Before we really get into our main focus of the text this morning, I would be remiss if we did not just for one moment genuinely ask ourselves the question whether or not we believe that God's commands are burdensome or not. What's the difference between the legalist and the lawless? One absolutely obeys and one struggles to obey, but both are struggling with the same thing. They don't love to obey God. The legalist does so out of obligation. The lawless does not obey out of more love for themselves. I tend to be more on that spectrum of the legalist of obeying God as a form of love and thinking that I can earn his love. Perhaps you're on the other side of the spectrum. But before we get into this war that we're talking about, I just ask you to be honest with yourself this morning. Because part of fighting this war is fighting the good fight of faith. It is loving God. It is obeying his commandments. It simply is. What soldier disobeys his commanding officer's commands? Does he truly respect, honor, revere that commander? What of the one who obeys but does not do so out of love, honor, respect of that commander? You see the commanders all throughout war history, the ones that were most revered and loved and respected are the ones that were in the trenches with them. And friends, we cannot forget that Christ is living via his spirit in us now. He is in the trenches in this war with us now. But as we approach verses four through five, I think it would be best for us to define some terms. As the title of this sermon is Overcoming the World, we must know what it means to overcome, but we also must have a clear definition of what the world is. It's very ethereal just to say the world. There's actually three different Greek terms for the word world. What we're talking about this morning is cosmos, but we'll get to that. But first, let's talk about overcome. The Greek word here means to conquer, as in a military conflict. So this overcoming that we're talking about, overcoming the world, is a military conflict. There is an overcoming in which we are enlisted into the army of Christ, in which there is a spiritual war going on now. And the call is to overcome. But this world, as I mentioned, is cosmos. The definition is this, the ordered system of fallen mankind and their beliefs and morals that are in rebellion to God and subservient to Satan. I'll say that again. The world, so that way when we use that word this morning, we're on the same page. It's the ordered system of fallen mankind and their beliefs and morals that are in rebellion to God and subservient to Satan. It's not that they're just opposed to God, but they are subservient to Satan. We see this truth in Ephesians chapter two, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, by nature, children of wrath. We are either, as we have seen in John, for God or against. We are either in Christ or anti-Christ. We either love the world or we love God. We are either in Christ or not. The same is true here this morning. The definition of the word world John uses in his gospel. John chapter 110, the world did not recognize Christ. Therefore, the word the world does not recognize us. John 15, 18 through 19, John teaches us that the world hated Christ. Therefore, the world will hate us. What we see, there is no neutrality. There is no mid-ground for a guy like me who likes to be so objective and try to see the different vantage points of the other side and try to ride the fence and see if I can find commonality. This is a breath of fresh air for me, and I pray it is for you as well. That in this war, you are either fighting actively for your Savior King Christ, or you are actively pursuing the things of the enemy. This is a clash of world view. Both cannot be correct. 1 John 2, 15 through 17 taught us this truth. Do not love the world. Otherwise, the love 
of the Father is not in you. This is a tough truth because the things of the world can be appealing to our flesh, can't they? Status, power, approval, the things that this world holds up as penultimate can be very appealing to our flesh. John taught us this as well, the pride of the eyes, the pride of life, the pride of flesh, why this world can seem so alluring is because it's designed to appeal to your flesh. This is why the old hymn says, fix your eyes on the cross and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. What we have in this moment is an objective truth. You are either in the secular worldview And even that word, secular, is Greek for the other word for world. World, it's a description of world. It means this, secular means there is no eternity. There is only here and now. Let's eat and live and make merry for tonight we die is the motto of this world. There is no tomorrow. Live your best life now. Do these catchphrases sound familiar to you? They are the motto, the battle cry, the battle standard of this world. You are either there or you are subspecie eternal nalitis. Surprised I got that one correct. What it means is everything is under eternity. You either live your life actively in every decision as if though there is no eternity or there is eternity. You either live your life secular or sacred. You are either for Christ or against Christ. So those are the definitions that we have to understand as we are talking about overcoming the world. First question for us in our outline is who overcomes the world? If we are called to overcome the world, who overcomes the world? Verse four, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. Letter A, those born of God overcome the world. Remember, overcome here means to conquer as in a military conflict. This word overcome is an active present tense verb. It means that there is something for you to do. You must overcome. When the world comes at you and says, this is where satisfaction is found, in Christ do you overcome. You remember only by faith in Christ overcoming, do you overcome this world? The question we're asking here is how do we overcome? Do you overcome the world and its desires by your own ability? If you have tried doing that, let me ask you a really frank question, how is that going? Men, when you have that advertisement of that woman wearing nowhere near amount enough of clothing, how are you overcoming? Women, when you get pushed in front of you that the life that you really want to live, the best life for you is to be out of the house in the world and accomplishing all of these things instead of nurturing and loving and supporting and being a helpmate, biblical Proverbs 31, woman, how are you overcoming all those things alluring, not saying that women can't be there, but what I am saying is when the world is coming at you, appealing to your flesh, that's a battle charge of the enemy. Are you aware of that in the moment? Or is this just another day Is it just another advertisement that you're seeing scrolling across the screen? Is it just another opportunity for you to say, well, there is grace in Christ? Or is there this an opportunity for you to say, Romans 6, 1, should I go on sinning that grace may abound? No, may it never be so. You can't overcome in your own strength is the point. Christ has designed it that way for your good. I would argue if you come into this room this morning tired and weary of fighting sin, 
I would argue you're fighting under your own strength, not in the strength found in Christ. David teaches us this in Psalm. He said, when I held back my sin from you, when I did not confess it, your hand was heavy on me. My spirit was dried up within me. My bones were cleaving to me. He's giving a physical depiction of his spiritual state. And many of us spend our life this way, trying to overcome the world in our own strength. And we don't even have the strength to sometimes make it to worship on time or to wake up when we want to go or go to the gym when we want to be more disciplined. We don't have the strength to do that. How are we going to fight a cosmic war against our very soul when the enemy of your soul is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, and he is a roaring lion on the doorstep waiting to pounce? Only by faith in Christ and his overcoming do we overcome the question we're asking is, who overcomes the world? We said, A, those who are born of God, but also B. B, the most beautiful truth, is that Christ has already overcome the world. Already overcome. If you're fighting in this war and you're tired and you're thinking it's all about you and your self-effort and your ability to fight, you are missing the beauty of the gospel, the good news that Christ himself wrapped himself in human flesh, the very flesh that you give way to so often and lived the life that you could not live and died the death that you and I deserve and took on the wrath of God on Calvary and has set you free to walk in him. He has already overcome. John 16, in the world you will have tribulation. There will be war. There will be an onslaught against your very soul but take heart, I have overcome the world. This fallen mankind-ordered system that we get to see flash across our television screens or as we're thumbing through our newsreels on Instagram or Facebook, it can be so discouraging to us, can it? When we are walking by faith in Christ and we see the truth of Christ and how he calls us to live and everything in the world is going the exact opposite way. It can be discouraging, can it? It can feel as if though we're fighting an uphill battle. It, it can feel as if though we're storming the beaches of Normandy and we see the bunkers and we see the barbed wire and we see and we know that this is going to be a tough fight, but there is no morale to take to those beaches. But then we remember that the victory is already won. You see, this war started cosmically in eternity past and it came to fruition in the garden when there was the prophecy of the Christ of how the seed of the woman, Eve, that would be us and the seed of the serpent, they would be at enmity with each other and the seed of the woman, Christ, would crush the head of the serpent. It was foretold, it came to pass and we live in the reality now. Do you feel that? Or is anxiety welling up in your heart every time you turn on a newsreel? Do you live in the reality of this that only by faith in Christ overcoming, do you overcome? That's what 1 John 5, 4 says, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We overcome by Christ overcoming. Let us see, not only has Christ overcome the world, but Christ has already overcome the world's Ruler, Satan. John 12, 31, now, is the now this is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. When he crushed the head of the serpent, the ruler of this world was defanged. 1 Corinthians 15 would say that death has lost its sting. There is no more victory in death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? The power of the sting of death is the grave, but Christ overcame the grave. Speaking of the grave and overcoming in his resurrection, I love what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4.8. Speaking of how Christ overcame the, world, the ruler of this world, he says this, Ephesians 4.8, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. That's Christ. When Christ ascended, he led a host of captives. R.C. Sproul says this of that verse. 
Christ didn't ascend alone. He was leading captivity itself captive. In Christ's trail, in his wake, as he rose to the right hand of God, were the captives that he had conquered, that he had overcome. The principal captives in that entourage were not the kings and rulers of this world, as so much as it was the powers and principalities of Satan himself. That when Christ rose, it wasn't just a victorious life that you will one day raise with him, but he took the captives of your soul with him. This war that you walk in every single day is a war that you walk in victory. Have you ever seen the videos of the ticker tape parades of when the war was over in World War II, the joy and the victory, of streamers coming from balconies, of people taking to the streets, of fireworks, of parades, of the joy of when war was over. Do you walk in that joy? What you may be feeling at this point is, how do we, how do we live in light of this? If the war is already won, if Christ has already overcome both the world and the ruler of this world, why am I called to overcome? If Christ has already overcome, why am I called to overcome? What do we do in the, in the meantime? You see that although Christ has already won and he demands of the enemy unconditional surrender, Satan refuses and therefore his forces are still at work within the world. That means there's still an enemy of your soul. That means that this world who are under, is under his influence is still an enemy of your very soul. It means that everything you take in is either pulling you further away from Christ or closer to him. It means what we consume dictates who we are. If we're consuming more and more of God's word, we are sanctified and become more like him. And Christian, the more you partake in the world and soak in the world, you become more and more like the world. You don't drift towards holiness, as we said last week. But praise be to God that even if you're pursuing those things, his spirit will drag you to righteousness. As a commander has a wounded soldier on the field that he's not gonna leave behind, Christ is not gonna leave you behind. But if you chose to walk out of the trenches of the safety and the security of Christ and you walk on that battlefield alone apart from him, you will be wounded graciously, if you will not repent of your sin and seeking after the world, he will visit you and visit me with stripes, with faithful discipline as a faithful father to bring us back. Revelation 12, 10 through 12 depicts this victory that Christ has already had, but Satan still being the ruler of this world. Verse 10, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. His time is short. He's a dog on a leash. He can go no further than God dictates, but absolutely God will allow him to visit you with trial and tribulation. If it's what's best for your soul, Christian, look no further than the example of Job. But this thought that the war is already really over, but there's skirmishes that remain, reminds me of, a, of such an odd story from the Civil War. If you're a history or Civil War buff, perhaps you realize that the Civil War ended in May, but that's not when the actual war ended. In fact, nine months later was when the final end of the war happened. The CSS Shenandoah, was a merchant vessel from the Confederate Army that was still plaguing northern ships all the way into the Alaskan Sea some four months later, and they had a British vessel come up to them and say, the war is over, and they did not believe it. 
They didn't want to give up their ship for fear of mutiny and, and uh, execution if they had been given way of their ship to pirates. So they circumnavigate and go all the way to Liverpool in England before they finally get news that the war is indeed over. You see those soldiers fought, even though that the war was over wrongly. But there is still a war to be fought for us as Christians, even though the victory is secure. We are to righteously look to our king and say, until you tell me to lay down my arms, I will fight. Until you tell me that I don't need to advance the gospel, I'm not gonna stop telling everyone about the good news of Christ. Until you tell me that there's not an enemy who is seeking to kill, steal, and destroy my soul, I'm not gonna lay down my shield of faith, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation. I'm going to stay armed for your good, for your glory, God. But not only is Christ overcoming the world now and the enemy, but he will completely overcome the world and Satan. Letter D, Christ will completely overcome the world and Satan. Rest assured, this conquering, this military victory that Christ has will be complete. It's not a half-hearted battle where both sides just decide to, you know, we're going to call it. There will be a conquering of both the world and Satan. Revelation 19, 11 through 18. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and the one sitting on it called faithful and true and in his righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on a white horse. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. The world will be conquered. Are you in Christ or of the world? John has been a test of assurance and for you to know, you can have heart that that will not be you indeed if you love God, if you love the fellowship, if you love to obey his commandments, if you believe that Jesus is the son of God, all of these are the only way that you can have hope that that will not be you but also of Satan, as Revelation 20.10 says, he will be finally conquered and defeated. Revelation 20.10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And this is the truth that we look forward to as the children of God the one who hates your soul, the one who is causing you to stumble outside of your own flesh, the one who is seeking to steal, kill, and destroy, the one who is seeking to rob glory from God will be vanquished. Christ will overcome. But as our main theme says, by faith in Christ overcoming, will we overcome? That's why verses 4b through 5 continue as we consider the question, how do we overcome the world? If Christ has already overcome, how do we? Letter A, by faith that Jesus is the Son of God. We see this as verse four continues, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now, it's easy to read ourselves into that, that this victory that has overcome the world is our faith. It's our faith. It's possessive until we remember the truth of scripture that faith was given to us. Namely, that faith is not in ourselves to overcome, but our faith in the work of Christ as our propitiation, the one who satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. Our faith in that sacrifice, by default, is how we overcome. Faith in Christ in his finished work, 
Faith in Christ in his life of righteousness. Faith of Christ in his presence with us today. Faith in Christ in his imminent return. That faith in Christ is how you overcome. If faith is the very thing that brought you to life in Christ, faith is the thing that will cause you to sustain. If faith is the thing by which God pulled you out of this world and into the family of God as a child of God, surely is it not faith that will call you into your celestial home for all eternity. It's not yours. It's his. And he's allotted to you. Those who have faith that Jesus is the son of God have the victory. If you were to do a word study of that word victory, it's a word that you guys are familiar with. Nike. When I say Nike, you think, just do it. But Nike is literally translated as a successful end to a military conquest. The victory, the successful end to a military conquest, how you conquer, how you overcome this world, the victory has been given to you as Christ, your king, the commander of the armies of heaven as we get to see as the children of Israel go into the promised land that they're visited before they march around Jericho. The angel of the armies of the Lord Christ in pre-incarnate form visits the people of God and gives them the victory. What does Proverbs say? We have a responsibility in this overcome, do we not? We have a a moral agency to seek to put to death the flesh and live in Christ, Proverbs would say the chariot is made ready for battle. That is our moral agency, our responsibility. But what does it say? The chariot's made ready for battle, but the victory belongs to the Lord. Your overcoming is Christ's grace to you. Your believing Christ is God's grace to you. This fight that you fight, that Paul would encourage Timothy in, this fight is the good fight of faith. The fight is not against flesh and blood and principalities, but rather dominions and rulers and darkness. The fight is the fight to believe. And all of us who are sons and daughters of God believe that he has given us the victory. Only by faith in Christ overcoming do we overcome. This was taught to us in Hebrews, most famous chapter in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11, the hero's hall of faith. How did the heroes overcome? Hebrews eleven thirty three. who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Do we think the victory has changed? No. Do we think that just because we don't live in a country where we hear gunfire every single day that we are not in war? No. If Satan cannot have your soul, he will surely have your attention. And what is a better function of this world than to take up your attention? To tempt your flesh. There's a saying that was bouncing through my head when I was preparing for this and talking about the internal makeup of people. When you think about grit and grind and it takes grit and grind to fight this fight every day, trust me, I fall short in this so often. It was a great reminder. There was a saying that was just bouncing around in my head is no guts, no glory. It's when you talk about when people are fighting, it's blood, sweat, and tears. The other saying is, if you were to cut me, you hear a lot of fans say this, perhaps you've said it, I've said it as a Georgia fan, if you cut me, I bleed red and black. But a soldier in the army of Christ, if you were to cut us, we bleed faith. Faith in God. 
And surely if we are in war, we should have scars and we should be bleeding faith. And surely as the household of faith, when we see another brother and sister losing this fight of faith and giving way to the world, we should not sit back apathetically, but we should take to that battlefield as a good medic and we'd take in the blood transfusion of the blood of Christ as we encourage them with it and we give them a transfusion of the faith in God. Many of us live our life in spiritual triage constantly on the medic's table because we have run out into faith alone, not by faith alone. The word overcome here in its meaning, it's, a, it's an odd verb tense, it's an aorist verb tense. What that means, it's not with process, it's just a snapshot. What John is trying to depict for us here is the victory that we have is a snapshot. If you were to take a picture of this room right now, you could look at the faces and you could see joy, encouragement, discouragement, guilt. You'd see a little bit of what's going on, but not the full picture. What he is trying to get us to see is that there is a snapshot of the victory that we have in Christ, and it's simplistic. You don't need to know the process or the depth. Your victory is in Christ. It was in your wounded Savior. It's in the Lamb that was crucified yet stands. Revelation gives us this snapshot of how we overcome. We read it earlier, and it bears repeating. Revelation 12, 10 through 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before God and catch this. And they have conquered, the same word for overcome. They have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. If Christ has already overcome and you still have a part to play in this battle, how do you overcome? Letter B, by the blood of the lamb. Only by faith in Christ overcoming do we overcome. Romans 8, 37 through 39 teaches us this. Know in all of these things, we are more than conquerors, more than those who overcome through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Amen church. We are more than conquerors through Christ. This is why we do not fear this world, this fallen mankind. This is why we do not shrink back. This is why Christ, as Peter makes the confession that Jesus is the Christ, this is why he says, on that declaration where I build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Christian courage to take to the battlefield, knowing the victory is already won. And if you die on the battlefield, you will live in eternity with Christ. What the church needs more than anything is emboldened believers who know the gospel truth, who take the call to take up their cross and follow him to the battle lines seriously because you've already overcome, because the blood that you could spill doesn't mean you will, but you could, compares nothing to the sufficient blood of Christ that was spilled for you already. Let us see that we pull from Revelation 12 as well. It's not only by the blood of the lamb, but by the word of our testimony. The word of our testimony. We must, we must open our mouth the testimony here is a witness, is as in a court case, as someone gives a testimony that's proving that something is true. 
your gospel witness proves what you believe. If you want assurance that you're in Christ, you must be a herald. You must open your mouth. You cannot help but speak about what you love. The assurance starting all the way in verse one is those who believe are the children of God. If you believe, you will speak. You will. What does this practically look like for us? This is not just go ethereally share the gospel. It is when you're sitting in the barber chair, bring up the gospel. When someone comes to you on the sidewalk in Milledgeville asking for food, if you can, sure, say, I'll sit down and and, and buy you a meal, but here's the deal. I get five minutes of your time to share the gospel. What does it look like? It looks like 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 6. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. What does it look like to share our testimony? Is If someone is saying something that you know is not true, love your God enough to lovingly tell them that is not true. God does not help those who help themselves. I know people can be well-intentioned, but these sayings that people say, that God just loves us all the same. The truths that are not biblical truths, open your mouth and love that person and love your God enough to share the testimony of Christ. But also we can't miss what was also said in there, 2 Corinthians 10, 5, is to take captive every thought to obey Christ. If we are seeking to reconcile the world to Christ, we must be in a constant state of reconciliation, not that we can lose our salvation, but are you taking captive every thought? In battle, there are captives taken in because they know that if they were left alone out there, they would come back to fight against them, perhaps to even kill them, these temptations of your flesh are to be taken captive every thought or they will be killing you. This is why John Owen says, be killing your sin or it will be killing you. You don't do that on your own effort. You do that by the power of the Spirit as well. Letter D, as we are pulling these truths from Revelation 12, the final thing that it says in Revelation 12, 11 there, of how we overcome is by not loving our life even unto death. Not loving our life even unto death. Only by faith in Christ overcoming do we overcome. When you are visited with death, this becomes all the more real and visceral. You have a loved one die, mortality is on the forefront of your mind. A loved one is sick, you contemplate your own death day. When you look to the future as we got to do in our men's Bible study on Saturday, contemplating what would 30 years look like in the future, I could see it on my brother's face of saying, Lord willing, I'm here. But we love not our life even unto death. Martyrdom is not a high calling we pursue, but if it is one that we are called to. Absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Again, I can look at your faces and see this is not things we think about often because we think we are so comfortable here. We don't have to think about these things. And I would not say that is a benefit to us, but is a common grace given to us by God because there are so many people throughout church history who are living the life of faith having to think this. The first chronological in period of time gospel is the gospel of Mark. When believers gathered to read it, they gathered in the catacombs under Rome because if they were walking the streets and if a Roman guard asked them, who is Lord? And they didn't say Caesar, they were run through with a spear. We don't live in that. 
Not that we should desire that, but the church has always blossomed when the church was made to live as Christ lived. That's why Tertullian, one of the early church fathers, says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Have you thought about missions? College student, just out of college. Family, I've seen families go. And when I said missions, did you think foreign missions? Because you're a missionary now and a battlefront now. If you're thinking about that for the future or feel that call, start now. All of us are to start now. I'd like to end our time this morning with, uh, by this point, hopefully a brief overview of the rewards for overcoming the rewards for overcoming, they're listed in Revelation. You probably didn't think you'd spend so much time in Revelation this morning. As one of our faithful brothers in Christ, Vody Bauckham says, Revelation becomes increasingly easy to understand when we understand it was written like any other book was written to give believers hope, to encourage them, to remind them that Revelation is just the conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent and how the seed of the woman overcomes and conquers and how we conquer because we are the bride of that groom. Rewards for overcoming quickly. Revelation 2, 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in paradise. The tree is the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. It's eternal life. Those who overcome will be given eternal life. Therefore, persevere as God preserves you. Revelation 2, 11, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The second death is hell. It's eternity in the presence of the wrath of God, in eternal darkness, but yet fire. And you have peace and assurity that that is not awaiting for you. To those who overcome, Revelation 2, 17, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except for the one who receives it. Hidden manna, it's the bread of Christ. Just as the Israelites lived on the bread of Christ in the wilderness and provision, to the one who overcomes, we're given Christ, the bread of life. If you're in Christ, he is living within you now, sustaining you through his word. The white stone, this is a white stone of absolution of guilt and Olden times, they would give in a court case either a white stone for those who are absolved of guilt or a black stone to those who are condemned, to those who conquer through Christ and Christ alone. And we're given a white stone. And that new name is the new name of adoption. As you adopt a child into your family, they take on your last name. As a bride marries their groom, we take on the name just as we take on the name of Christ as co-heirs with him as children of God. Revelation 2, 26, the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father and I will give him the morning star. The same verbiage was used as we read Revelation 19 as Christ judged the nations with a rod of iron and the earthen vessels as we remember in 2 Corinthians, we are earthen vessels. To the one who overcomes, this is also an allusion back to Psalm 2 of those who, why do the nations plot and rage in vain against God? This is the wicked. As we overcome, we have a part to play as God judges the nations. We are the nations and we have a part to play in either the absolution or the condemnation but also the morning star. You can see in Revelation twenty-two sixteen that Christ calls himself the morning star. Again, if we overcome, we've been given Christ. The reason why you overcome, the reason why you look forward to eternity is not for the no more tears. It's not for the no more sorrow. It's not for the joy and the peace. It's for Christ, your eternal reward. By faith, we overcome.
Number five, Revelation 3, 5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in a white garment and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Robes, it's the righteousness of Christ that although this morning, every one of us have fallen short of the glory of God. If we were to wake up with a white robe, it would be tarnished already and it's not even noon but our white robes will shine as the noonday sun in the presence of Christ because it's his perfection given to us. So if you're falling short, there's no better day than today to remember that Christ's righteousness is imputed to you and given to you. And no amount of sinning can ever tarnish that, but do not seek to do it yourself. Be drug into war. Don't go into it yourself seeking it. Revelation 3.12, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar and a temple of my God. This is my favorite. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write him on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. A pillar is a monument to God's faithfulness. We have pillars through Milledgeville. You can see going towards GMC, there's monuments very stately, firm, resolute things that do not move. To those who conquer and overcome, it's not because we overcome, it's because it's a testimony to the faithfulness of God. If we are faithless, he is faithful, Paul says to Timothy. But I love that he inscribes on that. If you look at a monument, if you're like me, I go into history museums and my wife will read everything and I tend to not read everything. But on this inscription, if you were to read, it's the name of the city of God. It's New Jerusalem. That's the people of God. That's us. If you overcome, you will be accounted with the faithful. That you don't enjoy God alone forever. You enjoy it with perhaps the one sitting right next to you for eternity. I like the inscription. I said it was one of my favorite because what came to my mind initially when I wrote this is, for all of you Toy Story fans, perhaps some of the kids will get this one. When Andy was pleased with Woody, what did he write on the bottom of his boot? Andy, his name. In the same way Christ writes his name on us as our names are written in the book of life and will never be blotted out. It's not gonna get painted over like Woody's boot. And finally, Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. If the last was my favorite, this is the one that just does not seem right for us to sit on the throne with Christ. Sitting on his throne is reigning as co-heirs alongside of Christ in eternity. Everything he earned to become that king, he allows us to partake in. Wretched, vile, sinful, weak, frail, soldiers of Christ that we are. The spoils of the victory of Christ are shared with us. Matthew Henry says of this, those who are conformed to Christ in his trials and victories shall be conformed to him in his glory. They shall sit down with him on his throne and on his throne of judgment at the end of the world, on his throne of glory to all eternity. Only by faith in Christ overcoming have we already overcome. As a church, we can walk in that. Walking in that looks like the small, simple steps of obedience. A soldier's obedience isn't always in the grand acts of valor, but in the taking of simple commands like to love brother, to keep my commands to share my gospel, to invite others into this fellowship, to be resolute in his word, to be faithful in family worship. Our commands are not grandiose in the sense that they were outside of our own ability in Christ to, to accomplish, but for us, Branch Church, we do have grand marching orders to go out into this city that Christ has already overcome and to see the gospel overcome it Would you march 
side by side alongside of us as elders and deacons and as covenant members. Would you recruit others into this army? Would you be faithful? As soldiers sign their documents of all that they will do and uphold as they're in the army, as you've signed your covenant membership, would you uphold that alongside of us and see Christ and Christ alone glorified in the city? Faith, faith given to you and faith exercised as a faithful servant of Christ. Let's walk in that together, church. Father, thank you that you have overcome. We have no need for fear, nor doubt, nor trepidation. If we're not only clothed in your armor, but also your righteousness, how can we fear? As you taught us in your word last week that perfect love casts out fear, this is why we can run towards the sounds of the world, not being allured by them, but seeking to provide the hope of the gospel. Humbled that you allow us to do this together as a family. So would you be honored and glorified only because you have overcome and you have provided the victory. So Father, we love you, but thank you for first loving us. It's in your name we pray, amen.